Take your Bibles and open them to the book of Hebrews. Be sure to have your Bibles or your iPhones. Be sure to make some circles or some underline or highlight some things as we go through this amazing book of the letter to the Hebrews. We're not sure who wrote the book, and we're not sure exactly who the recipients were. We know they were Jewish believers, but we do know this. The theme of the book from chapter 1 to chapter 13 is this, Jesus is absolutely supreme. His authority is supreme. We're going to see that today. His effectiveness is supreme. Everything he came to do, he accomplished, and his intimacy is supreme. He desires a personal relationship with each one of us. Today, we're going to go through chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and we're going to see that supremacy of Christ's authority Let me read these three verses, and then we're going to work our way uh, through each one. Chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, the writer says, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, remember, he's writing to Jewish believers, so he can say, spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's what he used to do. But in these last days, in these recent times... He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created. He also He created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's work our way through those those verses. First of all, it's amazing to see in these verses that God, the eternal God, has spoken to man. The God who spoke the world into existence chooses to speak with us. From the beginning, the writer says, long ago, when the world was created, when God breathed into man the breath of life, He can He started to communicate with man. He communicated with Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2 directly. And then when sin interrupted their fellowship, he continued to speak to them. He continued to desire a relationship with them. God has spoken to us. Sometimes he speaks directly. Sometimes he speaks to the prophet. Now, it's interesting that religion has a different philosophy, doesn't it? Religion says, I got to get to God. I got to make the trip to Mecca. I got to be involved in a holy war. I got to, I got to, I got to achieve some type of nirvana. I I have to find the God hidden within me. I have to do these things. Religion is always seeking God, but Christianity is not about religion, is it? It's not a relationship. God is seeking us. He is seeking those who are lost, and He finds us in His Son, Jesus Christ. On our best day, with our best efforts, man cannot find God, but God found us. And when the writers of the Hebrews sat down to write this God-inspired message, he started with this, with this fundamental tenet of Christianity. Long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago, the writer says, God spoke to man. He desired to have this relationship with us. Now you say, time out. So we got the Bible, and we are graciously blessed by that. And there are a lot of people in the world who have Scripture for them. But what about the people who never heard? 
What about the people in the deepest, darkest recesses of the world, and no one has gone to them because they don't know they're there yet, and no one has, has put God's Word, His love letter to us in their hands? What about those people? How has God spoken to them? I'm so glad you asked that question. You guys are astute. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Here the question is answered for us. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. These are verses you need to know. When someone asks you that question, well, what about people who've never heard? Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Check this out. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown them. Well, how has God shown them? For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that He has made, that have been made. So they are without excuse. So even the person who doesn't have Scripture, even the person where no missionary has gone to speak to them, even that person can look up at the stars in the sky, the heavens declare the glory of God. So that they look up and they say there has to be, maybe they don't know His name, they certainly don't know the Jewish name Yahweh, and they don't know the name of Jesus, but they look up and say there has to be a great Creator. He is greater than me. The heavens declare His glory, and I I place my faith in Him. I trust in Him. Even creation, God has spoken through creation so that no person is without excuse. No one, no one will be able to stand before God on judgment day and say, I never knew you. I didn't get it. Seriously? You're God? Even the heavens declare the glory of God. So sometimes God speaks through nature. Sometimes He speaks through visions and dreams in the Old Testament, sometimes through natural interventions like storms or thunders or drought or floods, sometimes through supernatural intervention when he, when he opens the Red Sea for the Israelites to cross. That was communication, wasn't it? I love you so much that I'm opening up the sea for you to leave the slavery of Egypt to go into a new land. Then when he goes into the land of promise, they had to get across the Jordan. So he opened up the Jordan for them. God spoke in all these different ways, and he spoke through the prophets as well. All the prophets of the Old Testament. Sometimes words of encouragement, sometimes words of warning. Then the last prophet was who? Okay, that was not a trick question. <laughs> last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And then God didn't speak. Or at least it's not recorded. He still spoke, but it's not recorded. How long is it between Malachi and when Jesus came? 400 years. Why did God do that? Some theologians call Jesus the object of expectation, anticipation. See, it wasn't like Malachi uh, was gone on this day, and then this day Jesus came. So he's another one of the prophets. Like, he didn't come the next day, and he didn't come the day after that, and then he didn't come 
the year after, or the century after that, 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 and now people are expecting, they're crying out, send the Messiah. We need another prophet. We need someone to come and save us. And then Jesus came, the object of expectation. God spoke in many ways, many different ways he spoke, but in these last days, look at the verse 2, but in these last days, in these recent days, the writer's saying, today he has spoken to us by his son. In the Old Testament, there were types of Jesus. There were, there were, there were examples. Uh, the whole sacrificial system was getting ready for that one time for all time sacrifice. There, there, were, there were prophecies about Jesus. The Old Testament is like a, a covenant of promise. It's coming. The New Testament is a covenant of fulfillment. Jesus has come. He has fulfilled the law and the prophets. Think of it like this. In the Old Testament, the believers there were standing uh, with, a, with a wrapped package, like you get a wrapped package for your birthday or Christmas, and so you get this wrapped package. That's what the believers had. They knew a great gift was inside. They just couldn't open it yet. And so their faith was in the gift inside this great package. In the New Testament, the package is unwrapped, and Jesus comes. John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh, package unwrapped, and, and dwelt among us, or literally pitched His tent among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you're a, a, a ruler, a human ruler, you send an ambassador to speak for you, right? Well, God sent Jesus and God speaks in Jesus, in his ambassador. In Christ, the fullness of God dwells. Okay, in verses 2 and 3, we see what's called the seven excellencies of Christ. You've got to have these nailed down. Seven excellencies of Christ. We're going to go through them one by one. If you didn't have the rest of the New Testament, if you didn't have the Gospels, if you didn't have other letters, these seven excellencies of Christ would be enough. These are the seven you need to know. Now, thankfully, we do have the rest of the New Testament, so we can build on these. We get these things fleshed out. But these are the seven things you need to know about Jesus. What do you need to know about Jesus? We're going to cover that in the next few minutes here. Chapter 1, Hebrews, verses 2 and 3. Ready? Number 1. But in these last days he spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus Christ owns all things. It's his inheritance. God said, everything is your inheritance. You're the heir of all things. Psalm chapter uh, 2, Psalm 2, is called a messianic psalm. It's, it's, it's a prophecy predicting what's going to happen. And here's what it says, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, Messiah, and the ends of the earth, of the earth your possession. And, and note that God appointed him heir, a simple action in past time with lasting results. God appointed him as heir. That will never change. Now, in theology, there's some discussion here. Some people say, well, when did that happen? Uh, there are those who say, well, it happened at his baptism. You know, when Jesus was baptized, you are my son, right? 
uh, and I am pleased with you. Or at his resurrection when God raised him from the dead. By the way, both of those are heresies. In, in, in church history, they're called the, the heresy of adoptionism. That at a point in time, because of what Jesus proved, God adopted him as his son, and then he became an heir. Heresy. From the beginning, from eternity past, Jesus has always been in the eternal mind of God. We can't even fathom that, the eternity past. But Jesus has always been the heir of all things. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Jesus being in very nature God. Colossians chapter 1, 17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the heir of all things. He controls all things. And you say, you know, that's interesting, because when I clicked on my app, my USA Today app today, and read the paper, it certainly doesn't look like Jesus is in control of all things. Do you agree with that? Kind of looks like it's out of control, doesn't it? Stuff going on all over the world. Well, the writer of Hebrews wanted to address that. Look what he does in chapter 2, verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Okay, but you've got to answer that question. It doesn't look like it. He does. At present, right now, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It's all in theology, there's this, this phrase already, not yet. It already is in subjection to him, but one day in practice it will be. Chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. One of these days, Satan's defeated. But one of these days, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, and then in 7 through 10, he is going to be destroyed forever. He's going to be thrown in the lake of fire. He will be thrown in hell itself, and there he will forever be. And then we'll see the reality of the truth that Jesus is indeed the heir of all things. Now, here's one more thing that's very cool. Not only is Jesus the heir of all things, but when we trust in Him, what happens? We are co-heirs with Him. He lets us do that. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like in eternity, but we are co-heirs. We will reign with Jesus. Galatians chapter 4, 7 is one of the verses that talks about that. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. So not only does He say, you're my child, but He says, you got it all as well. Co-heirs with me. And I give you everything you need to do what I'm calling you to do. So, Number one, seven excellencies of Jesus. He is the heir of all things. Number two, Jesus is the creator through whom, the end of verse two says, through whom also he created the world. So this blows apart those who just think Jesus is that nice little baby for Christmas time, right? Babies are cool. You agree? Two of you agree. Babies are cool. Grandbabies are even cooler, actually. 
<laughs> Babies are cool, but you know what? We can control a baby. We can hold a baby in our arms. We can take a baby where we want it to go. And that's why we like to keep Jesus as a baby. We can control him. See, he asks us to submit to his control. We don't like that. So we like to, be, we like to control him. Jesus, here's what I need. Thank you for, I'm going to sing some songs to you. Thank you for, thank you for uh, all you do for me. And then I'll get back with you and I'll let you know what I need. But this blows that apart. Jesus is the creator. He's not a baby in a manger. He, he was that too. But he's also, before that, he was a creator of the world. The Greek word translated world here is not the normal one. Uh, cosmos is a normal Greek word for world. But this is the world I own. It describes the whole universe, not only the physical conditions, but the invisible parts of it, the, the, the functions and operations of the universe, like time and energy and matter and space, the, the, the world system that goes along with creation. John chapter 1 says that all things… So, is Jesus really the creator? Was Jesus there at creation creating? That's what it says here. John 1, 3 says, all things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, for by Him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. There's that I own, all the matter and space and all the things that go along with the universe. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and what? For him, because he's the heir of all things. It's his inheritance. Through him and for him. So Jesus is, is the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. Number three, he is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. This word radiance is only used here in Scripture. And, it, and as you know, it means the, 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 what, shines, what shines out of a source of light. Now, I get, did a little research here, and you can check me. Some of you will, will check me and, and tell me if I'm right or wrong. Um, the sun, in my research, I didn't do a lot. I just Googled it real quick. But uh, the sun is 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's pretty hot, right? It's hotter than it is in Florida right now. It's hot. And at its core, it's 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. If we got too close to the sun, we would be incinerated just like that. Even though it is 93 million miles from the earth, actually 92.96. On a clear day, you can't look at the sun for any length of time or it will damage your eyes. And yet, its, its radiance reaches us and gives us light and gives us life. And so it is with God. He is holy. He is perfect. His glory is beyond anything we can even imagine. Sometimes that word glory in the, Old, in the New Testament, doxa, means uh, a brilliant, brilliant light. Sometimes it means heaviness meaning that, that God, is, His weight, has in, His value, His intrinsic value in His person. But in the Old Testament, we know that you cannot look on God and live, right? We read that in the Old Testament. You can't look on God and live any, any more than you could get closer to the sun, S-U-N, and live. And so, God shines through Jesus so that we can 
so that we can handle Him, so that we can see Him, so we can see what He's like. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So just like the rays of the sun come down and allow us to experience the sun that gives us light and life, right? So Jesus is the radiance of God so that we can experience God, so that we can have the light and the life that God the Father gives. And even with that, some people still don't get it. You know why? Because the God of this world has blinded them to the light. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, two things there. Only God can change a person's heart. Only God can transform the heart. And so that's what we pray. But God also uses instruments to show people the light. And who's that? Look around. That's us, right? And so we have to have, we have to be lights. Jesus not only said he was the light, but he said, you are the light. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light so shine before men that see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Just as Jesus came as the radiance of God's glory, so Jesus, when he leaves, says, tag, you're it. And you now get to show people the glory of God. So the question we all have to ask ourselves is, are we doing that? Are we demonstrating to, to people in our lives that the light of Christ is shining through us? Are we doing that? Only you can answer that question. Only I can answer that question for me. So Jesus is heir of all things, right? He's the creator of all things. He's the radiance of God's glory. Number four, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. The word translated exact imprint is a Greek word, character. You know how it's translated in English? Character. Yeah, right. That word's found only in the New Testament, only here in the, just like radiance, this is a word found only in the New Testament. And, you, and in, originally, originally, it was used to describe the engraving tools that you would engrave an image on so that when you imprinted that, that dye on something, the image would show up. Later on in Greek literature, it just became, it, it came to be known as the imprint itself. And so Greek writers will, will describe an emperor's picture on Roman coins that have been imprinted on that coin, the character of that Roman emperor, just like we would imprint the picture of Abraham Lincoln on a, on a penny. So Jesus is the perfect imprint of God, flat-pressed into human flesh. Jesus is the exact imprint of God, pressed into human flesh. Jesus not only neglects Uh, reflects God's glory. He's the unique stamp of deity. Anyone who has seen me, Jesus said in in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has what? Has seen the Father. In Jesus, 
we see exactly who God is. Now, again, not his appearance, but we see God's character, the imprint. We see his love. You want to know what God's love is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God's justice is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God's power is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God's compassion is like? Look at Jesus. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint. Okay? So he's the heir. He's the creator. He's the radiance. He is the exact imprint. And number five, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. There in verse 3. Upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, the picture here is not like Jesus standing under the world holding it up. The picture here is of a conductor orchestrating a beautiful piece of music. Jesus is the director or the conductor of our lives. Just think of it. He stands there and he conducts all the physical laws of the universe. He conducts the sun to be just where it needs to be. If it got closer, it burns us up. If it gets further away, we freeze to death. As he conducts the laws of the universe, he makes sure the moon is just where it should be so the tides of the ocean don't flood the earth. As he conducts the universe, he makes certain the atmosphere is just the thickness it should be, because if it wasn't, the meteorites that now are burned up in the earth's atmosphere, if it was thinner, they would fall to the earth and we would be pummeled by the meteorites that fall. Jesus is the great conductor of the universe. He upholds it by the word of his hand. Just think, just picture him in your mind. We can't even imagine all the laws of the universe, but Jesus is conducting it like a, like a conductor uh, orchestrates a great piece of music. And you know what else he's done? He's also orchestrating our lives as well, isn't he? He's conducting our lives. And when you go hear a, uh, a piece the orchestra plays, sometimes in this beautiful piece of music, there are, some that, there are some that kind of take you by surprise, don't they? They kind of stand out. The, the, the sounds on their own sound kind of harsh in that area, but then it's all worked together into this beautiful piece, and so it is with our lives. You may be going through a time when, when you've been surprised, and it feels a little sharp, and it hurts. I know some of you are going through some tough times, but Jesus is still the orchestrator of your life. He's the, one who, he's the one who puts it all together. And one of these days, you'll be able to look back. And it may be in heaven. You'll be able to look back and what seems like a sharp note that's out of sync now will be that beautiful piece of music that God just wove into all the days of your life. It's hard to trust Him sometimes, isn't it? But He is the great orchestrator, upholding the universe by the word of his hand. All right. He's the heir of all things, right? He's the creator, the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his hand. And number six, Jesus is the perfect and complete sacrifice for sin. Look at um, 
verse 3. And after making purification for sins. We'll stop there. This is the number six. So far, the, the excellencies we've seen are magnificent. Heir of all things, creator of all things, radiance of God's glory, imprint of God's nature, orchestrator of the universe. But this one demonstrates Jesus' greatest act of humility, his death on the cross. We'll see as we go through the book of Hebrews how the Old Testament, all the purification rites of the Old Testament, they, they did that to make the sacrifice uh, good and acceptable. But Jesus is the purification for our sins. He's the one who, who cleans us from our sins. Now, to the Jews, that was a stumbling block. How in the world could the Messiah die on a cross? The Old Testament says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus, the Messiah, if he's the Messiah, he couldn't die on the cross. To the Jews, it's just foolishness. I mean, hanging on the, dying on a cross is not something you're going to put on your resume as a great man, much less one who claimed to be God. But here it is in the excellencies. He who hung the stars also hung on a cross, making purification for sin. And the, and the mood of the verb, and, or the participle, the purification is a participle, the mood and the tense means that the focus is on the subject, Jesus. He's the one who did it. And it is a completed act. It is done. It is over. He doesn't have to do it again. Jesus completed purification for us one time for all time. Look at chapter 7, verse 27. He has no need, Jesus has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this, what? Once for all when he offered up himself. One time for all time. Purification, one time for all time. Now, the Bible is clear that we're sinners, right? And we're tainted by our sin. We are, we, are, we are debtors who cannot pay our debts. So Jesus set things right for us. He made amends for us. In one word, in theology, that's called atonement. There are always two parts of atonement. To make amends and set things right. So by the atonement, Jesus took our sins and he became a curse for our sins. Involvement, uh, atonement involves these two things. Substitution and satisfaction. Jesus died on the cross as our substitute, right? And his dying on the cross satisfied the wrath of God. Now, let's just think about that for a second. Jesus took on all our sins. And there on the cross, He hung with our sins. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. And the wrath of God on every sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross. That's why He said, my God, my... It wasn't, it wasn't the physical pain. That's why he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some, some uh, commentators say, he is saying, I don't, I don't know how much longer I can take this. R.C. Sproul says it this way. He was, he was forsaken by the Father and experienced the full measure of hell on the cross. 
He paid hell for us. Think about that. Just let that soak in. He experienced the full measure of hell on the cross. How do you respond to that? How are you responding to Jesus in your life who took on hell for you, who took on our sins and died for us on the cross, satisfying the demands of a righteous God whose wrath is poured out on sin? First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 says, He died for us, saving us from the wrath of that was to come. We don't have to pay for that anymore. Jesus took care of it all. Okay. He's the heir of all things. You're going to have to help me through these. He's the creator of all things. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint, right? What's number five? He upholds the, wor- the world. He's a purification for sins. And finally... Jesus was exalted for his completed work. Look at the end of verse 3. He sat down, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In the Old Testament, the priest never sat down. The priest was always working. His job was never completed because he, he had to sacrifice for sins this year. And by the way, he had to sacrifice for his own sins and then the sins of the people. And then he had to do it the next year. He was always at work. He never sat down. Jesus, his work is done. He sat down, completed, and he sat down at the right hand of God, figurative for God's power and God's authority and God's preeminence. He sat down. God said, your work is done. You did everything I sent you to do. Done. Completed. And there Jesus fulfills the office. There are three appointed offices in the Old Testament. The prophet is appointed. The king is appointed and the priest is appointed, and Jesus fulfills all three of those. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. He sat down at the right hand of God. And this, the Savior, who, whose excellencies we've seen, who created the earth, who, who, who conducts all the laws, This Savior who took on hell itself for us. He desires an intimate relationship with you. He desires to walk with you. And he promises. The same one who spoke the world into existence says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Just think of that. Sometimes if we look at the seven excellencies of Christ, they're right up here, right? But Jesus says, I want them to be right here. I love you. I'll walk with you. Got an email this week I want to share with you. This is from Connie Armitage. Connie and Dave Armitage have been longtime members of our church. Jill uh, Kowalski, their daughter, uh, sings on our worship team, was singing today. And a few years ago, uh, their son uh, died of cancer, David Armitage. He was only 33 uh, years old. And listen to what Connie wrote. During David's last week, he was on a breathing machine and not conscious, at least not able to respond. 
We spent the day with him, just sitting there with him, and each evening we went home physically, emotionally exhausted, fell into bed to sleep, only to wake up to begin another day at his side. Well, one night, I woke up in the middle of the night, as usual, immediately thought of David, his cancer, and this night, thought about him laying in ICU alone. I felt guilty for not being there, and yet I was exhausted. I began to pray to the Lord and cry out to Him, sharing my guilt for not being there. And I received this reply as clear as if He spoke it aloud. Connie, David is not alone. I am with Him. And it doesn't get any better than that. I closed my eyes in peace and immediately went to sleep knowing that David was not alone. Jesus promises. The creator, the heir of all things, the one who upholds the universe, the imprint of God, the exact imprint. He says, I love you so much. Not only am I the purification for sin, not only have I taken on hell itself for you, I will be with you always. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You will never be alone. Jesus, he is absolutely supreme. We're going to sing a song. Some of you will be familiar with this. It's, a, it's an old hymn of the faith. It's called, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. How many are familiar with that hymn? It was first in print in 1779. It was written by a guy named Edward Perronet. And uh, he, was a, he was a character. He um, bounced around pastoring some churches. He ended up in an independent chapel in Canterbury. And for a while, he worked with John Wesley. And uh, John Wesley would um, go, and huge crowds would, would come when Wesley spoke. And he always wanted Perinette to speak, but Perinette said, I don't want to speak. Don't, don't have me speak. Well, one day Wesley just said, hey, Brother Perinette is going to come and speak to you tonight. So he stood up and he said, I will now deliver the greatest sermon ever preached on earth. And then he read the Sermon on the Mount and sat down. But he got these words right. All hell the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem, the crown, and crown him Lord of all. If that's your desire, if it's not your desire, don't sing this song. But if that's your desire, man, all of us got a lot to work on, right? We're not there yet. But our desire is this. We're broken, and we're working through that. We don't want to stay broken. We're going to work through that. But our desire is this. Oh, hell, the power of Jesus' name. Crown Him Lord. We want to crown Him Lord of all in our marriage. We want to crown Him Lord of all in our singleness. We want to crown Him Lord of all in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our school. Wherever we go, we want people to see the light shining through us as we crown Him Lord of all. If that is your desire... I want you to stand and sing with a loud voice as Kirk leads us in this song, All Hell the Power of Jesus' Name. Let's stand together.